it. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Rachel Pruchno. Dr. Pruchno is the endowed chair and professor of medicine at New Jersey's Rowan University. Uh, and she's perhaps the world's preeminent behavioral research scientist in the field of mental health and family dynamics. She's also served as editor-in-chief of The Gerontologist since 2011. Her new book is Surrounded by Madness, a memoir of mental illness and family secrets. And Surrounded by Madness has been described as transforming. It will empower families to stop hiding and start talking when mental illness strikes. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pruchno. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much, Catherine. It is transformative. I did read your book. It is empowering. And, I, you know, I have to say, and if I can call you Rachel, your Please story, uh, you know, there are echoes in your story of people that I know, whether it's family, friends, and colleagues. So uh, to me, it's really important that you obviously you get your story out and people... Still, there's still a stigma attached to mental illness. I'm not sure why we've been working on I mean, I was involved in uh, working at a mental health clinic in the 70s, and some of the same issues still exist, and I'm not sure why. You know, Catherine, I think it's, 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 it's amazing that, that we do have stigma, but, but it is, stigma is so alive. As, as I say in Surrounded by Madness, the, the stigma that, that, that exists now is the same stigma that I saw when my mother was ill 40 years ago. Um, you know, we, we've broken through a lot of barriers, but mental illness um, just remains. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to own it. Um, we're afraid. You know, and I think that what, what I realized was just how, how devastating it is and how, how much people who suffer from mental illness and their families um, contribute to the problem of, of, um, of lack of understanding um, by keeping secrets. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I, maybe we should start with that. How do they contribute to it? Because we always, you know, there's that we feel sorry for the victim, we feel sorry for the family, and, you know, for those who are affected by the person in the family who has mental illness. But everybody's kind of part of this whole, what would you, conspiracy in a way, a conspiracy to keep everything a secret, you know, that someone in the family is diagnosed with a mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of a... Maybe that's one of the things we could start out with because obviously you and your you were struck with mental illness. Your mother was mentally ill, and we'll talk about specifically and what her diagnosis was, and mm-hmm. your daughter. So mm-hmm. yeah, so you've lived it. I've lived it, and I and I, I really like your your word conspiracy. I think that that's exactly what it is. And you know, for some reason, we keep these secrets, 
And, and then we wonder why we're not making more progress in terms of diagnosis of mental illness and treatment of mental illness. And, you know, if you look at the NIMH budget compared, for example, with the National Cancer Institute budget, it's so much less because, because it doesn't, mental illness doesn't look like a real problem because we all hide. So, you know, I think it's, there's this, this vicious cycle of, of hiding so we don't make progress, so we keep hiding. You know, and something has to happen to, to help us break through that, that barrier so that we can start to make progress. Don't you think also, Rachel, that uh, Dr. Pooch know that part of the problem is that we somehow, and, and, and even though it's, it's, uh, uh, it's not legitimate, obviously, but we blame mental illness on ourselves. There's something we could do about it. We've lost control of ourselves, or we haven't taken care of our family in the right way. Yeah. And if we had done something, it wouldn't happen, whereas if it's cancer or diabetes, it's not our fault. Uh, Absolutely. You know, that happened to us. Yeah, we do. We blame ourselves. Um, you know, maybe part of that is that we can't see it. Um, we can see we can see diabetes in in um, blood tests, and we can see cancer in scans, but we can't see mental illness. And and maybe because we can't see it, we're more likely to say it doesn't really exist. And if you say something doesn't really exist, then then you start to blame. You blame the person for being lazy or for being um, for, for 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 not functioning like other people, and then you blame the family. And, you know, we love to blame mothers. Mothers are mothers since Freud's time have been blamed for everything. So, always so, mother's fault. Always mother's <laughs> fault. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think the issue is, you know, we, we, maybe, we're do, maybe this happens because we can't see it. And, again, you know, I think that what we know, you know, we're, science is really developing so that we are starting to see differences in the brains of people with, with schizophrenia, with, with major depression, with bipolar disorder. So, you know, I think the more progress we can make in terms of the science, the more we can understand that yeah, this is a real disease. This is bipolar disorder. Has this, there are, and schizophrenia, there are changes in the brains of these people. They are not lazy people, and their mothers are not lousy mothers. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Now that we have the tools to be able to look at the brain, like we had the tools, you know, mm-hmm. MRIs and CAT mm-hmm. scans to look at the heart, and we can now look at the brain and say, hey, there's something different going on. That's helpful. And, you know, just to mention the, the statistics, because we aren't talking about something that doesn't exist. NIH estimates, and I just want to kind of bring this out, approximately 78 million Americans, 78 million Americans, about one in four battle a diagnosable mental illness each year. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of Americans. That's, that's a, lot a lot of, of people. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people. So we do have to address the problem. But can we start with your story first? Because, I mean, that's obviously, it's a memoir, it's your story, it's your yeah. book, and I think your book really will help a lot of people. I think, you know, when you put a face on anything and you make it real, yeah, we need the statistics, we need the science, but we also need people to tell their stories like you. Absolutely. And, and that's why I decided to write my story. You know, after, after um, keeping this 40-year silence that my family and I um, had about my mother's and then my daughter's um, mental illness, I, I realized what a bad idea that is. You know, silence keeps families from getting the help that they need because their natural support system can't, can't kick in if, the, and if they don't know. Um, there's been so little progress because we hide. Um, so, so I wrote my book um, because I thought, you know, here I am. I'm a psychologist. Um, I've seen mental illness through the eyes of a child and through the eyes of a mother. And so I, I reached a point where I said, you know, if I can't tell my story, then, then how can I expect or encourage other people to do that? So, so I wrote my story in order to sort of make it okay for other people to do the same. 
All right, so let's start with the story. Let's say, sure. let's start with your mother and you as mm-hmm. the child. So, you know, that's where you begin. So, um, what was your mother? What was her diagnosis? Or how did you how did you come to realize that she was mentally ill? Right, and that's a wonderful question. Um, so, my mother's mental illness was unknown to me and my family until I was twelve, and my mother was forty two. Um, which, which is interesting because as I, I, when I wrote my book, I started, I started with my daughter's mental illness, and that looked very different than what I knew, had known of my mother's mental illness. Um, but, but what I as a psychologist know is that, that you know, so I found myself saying, well, did, did I just not know it? Did she somehow cover it up? Um, you know, mental illness, most mental illnesses are diagnosed um, very early in the teens, and, and you know, so I think 75% of mental illness is diagnosed by age 24, so I, I, there was a lot that I did not understand about my mother's mental illness. Um, she was diagnosed with manic depression, um, what is now called bipolar disorder. And her, um, her, her experience of mental illness, again, was very different than my daughter's. My mother's experience was she would get very, it was very seasonal, very cyclical um, with the calendar. So um, in, in the fall, she would start to become depressed. By December, um, she was suicidal um, and hospitalized many times. Um, in the spring, and hospitalized was, many times, you said you rec- realized she was 42. You were 12 when you yeah. realized that she was mentally this, it ill. Started. So, it started when she was 42 and I was 12. Before that, she, was, she, was not, she did not suffer any of the, the, the problems that we saw later. So that's what I didn't understand. I didn't understand. Um, manic depression usually starts earlier. She was a very accomplished person. She, this is a woman who was born in 1923. She had a master's degree in economics. She was a professional. She worked. Um, so I, I, when, as I was struggling to understand her story, I, didn't understand, I was trying to understand it in the context of my daughter's story, which was very different. Um, with my daughter, it was very apparent from a very early age that something was not right with her. It seems almost impossible that your mother was diagnosed at 42, yeah. as you well, say. I want yeah. to get back to that because, yeah. Well, and, yeah, and, what, and I, in the book you describe her as a great mother. I mean, she was there for you. She did the, the cookies and the baking and the all you know all the real yeah. stay-at-home mom kinds of things. Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you know th- that's par- part of what I come to terms with in Surrounded by Madness is is what really did happen to my mother and and and. I, I came to really understand her story, and we can come back to that because because my understanding of my mother's story um, really unfolds as I become braver and and more willing to talk about the mental illness in my family with my friends, many of whom are psychologists. Which is interesting because you feel reluctant to talk to your friends who are professionals who would. Yeah, you know, obviously, I would think if I mean if they're in that field, you know, as a social worker, they're going to be understanding, they're going to be sympathetic, empathetic, and yet you still are afraid to to share. Absolutely, and of course yeah. they were. They were all of those wonderful things, but it was it was me. It was my um, fear. It was my sense of the 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 stigma of you know either people thinking ill of my mother or my daughter or me that kept me hiding. And you know, I I want to think okay. This is a unique situation. It was just me, but it's not. You know, I'm, I'm really amazed at how often, you know, now that I have told my story, 
Um, I've, you know, I've written my story. I'm doing speaking engagements. It's, it's amazing to me how many times people will come up to me, um, people who, who maybe some of whom I've known for a long time and say, you know, me too. I, I, I get this me too stuff all the time. Um, and then people will tell me their story about a son or a daughter or a wife or a somebody um, who they've never told about either. There's this whole, this, this, this whole culture of, of, of people who have lived with mental illness and are afraid to talk about it. Yeah, this whole culture of hiding. Yeah, it's just, it's so huge. Um, right, so you want to start with your daughter because that's really how the whole, your, at least with you, everything kind of unraveled and you were able to look at your mother and understand what happened to yeah, her and so, with so you. Yeah, so let's start with her because, because it was, it was my daughter, my da- when my daughter left home at age 18, um, to, she, had been, she, had, she had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, with borderline personality disorder, and with ADHD. Um, and my husband and I kept, her, kept much of her illness secret, even from my brothers to whom I'm very close and to our closest friends, because, again, this stigma is alive and well. Um, you know, part of it is we didn't want... Um, our daughter too. We didn't want people to say, "Well, don't play with Sophie. You know, don't don't have her. You know, don't let her come over to your house because because she's suffering from a mental illness." So so a lot of it was protecting her. Um, some of it was was you know people you know didn't want them to think ill of us as parents. Um, but so 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 the the sort of back background to my story is that my husband and I kept secret, the fact that our daughter suffered from some very serious mental illness. When she was 18, um, she decided to run away from home to be with this um, heroin addict that she had met in a psychiatric hospital. Um, And we were faced with having to literally explain, where's your daughter? So, so this just pushed me, you know, somebody who, who might have lived in the closet for a few more years, um, you, I, had to, I had to explain to people, to people that I care about, where is this child? Um, and so that made me think, okay, how do I do this? How do I, how do I make people understand what we had lived with for the past 10 years? Um, and Did you, you ever know, get people say to you, you know, Rachel, we knew something was that I mean, we, I mean, we were aware. We, you, you never talked to us about it. Let's say your brothers or your family, because you said you're close to your brothers yeah. or your close friends or colleagues or whatever. Did they ever say, you know, we, we, we've seen it, we, but you never wanted to share with us. Yeah, there, there were some of those comments from very close people. You know, we always kind of knew something wasn't right with her, um, but we didn't talk about it because you didn't talk about it. So, so there was some of that. So, so when I when I started to think about okay, how am I going to explain her absence to the people that I love? Um, I realized that that I, I can't have you know twenty or thirty of these really long conversations to make people understand. So then I thought, well, let me start to write. Um, let me write the story. And so when I started writing the story, um, it was with the intent of of letting them understand some of the details that you know what we had dealt with. And then as I kept writing, I realized that, you know, the first draft of this book was, was very much the story of being Sophie's mother, and it was very cathartic. And then when I, when I sort of finished that, I realized, you know, there's a bigger story here, um, because, of course, I knew that I had also hidden my mother's illness from, from my closest friends, people who, uh, years after my mother had died, came to my wedding. They had no idea what had happened to my mother, yet they were close enough to, to, to come to my wedding. So, so then I realized that I really needed to, 
to tell this story, um, to, to explain to a bigger audience, you know, what, what was it like? What was it like to keep these kind of, this kind of secret? Um, both when was the first, and like getting specific, let's, and talking about your daughter, Sophie, yeah. like when Sophie, at what age did you get a sense that maybe, because in the book, it's, as you talk about her, she's very talented and artistic, creative, bright, all of those things. But yep. at, certain, at a certain point, you there were things that weren't quite right. And so what worse, because that's helpful to people too, obviously, yeah. when they read the book, they'll be able to, to get more information. But like, when did you first have this sense, was it something that happened within the family or was it the school telling you that she's, her behavior is inappropriate, or what? What did you? What do you look for? Yeah, no, you know, that's yeah. that's a great question, and, and you also have to remember that that she was my first child. So we all learn we learn everything we know about parenting from our first child. That is true, right? Yeah. So so as things were unfolding, you know, she would have friends, and so I would you know talk with other mothers. But but as a young child, she was very precocious and charming and adorable, and um, she was very very smart. Um, and we didn't know. We didn't look. So, so, so my answer to your question is: when I look back, the signs that something was was very different about Sophie were evident as early as age two. But when I was when she was two, I had no idea. I had really no idea that this was was so far out of the the normal. Some of the okay, behaviors. age two. Let's take age two because okay. age two is the age where. They're, they're, two-year-olds, as most of us know, if anybody who's had kids, I mean, yep. two, they're wild, they're chaotic, they're crying, they're... Yep. Yeah, okay, so... Yep. So, but at age two, what, what really struck me there is at age two, when I took her to get her flu shot, this is a... Oh, you, you get a flu shot, children cry. This is the norm. Everybody, you know, kids cry. So, so when, when I took her for her flu shot at age two... Um, she was you know, sort of chatty, and um, you know, it, and, and I prepared her for it. And I said, you know, it's only going to hurt for a little second, and and then it's going not, to not not hurt anymore, and you won't get the flu, and you won't get sick. So, so this is a child who convinced herself that this flu shot was not going to hurt. She walked into the doctor's office, and you know, chatted with the nurses and chatted with the doctor. You know, do you have a flu shot for me? And he gives her the shot, and she just sits there. And and the nurses, it wasn't just me. The nurses, it was the end of the day. The nurses are standing around waiting for this child to start wailing. None of that. You know, that so when I look back, I thought, wow. You know, not, yeah. not to say that every child who doesn't break down at a flu shot is, is going to develop a mental illness. But when I look back, you know, that, that, was, that was a very early, something was very different about her. Yeah, the determination um, to sit there and to be yeah. able to not react is not... <clears throat> typical of a two-year-old. Exactly. If I if I forward to age four, she was acting out in in school. Now the teachers all loved her because again she was adorable, she was charming, she was very very bright, um, but she was very disruptive. So in, in pre-K, the the teacher you know starts sending the notes home, and then the, the principal's calling me all the time, and then the principal says, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get this we're we're, we're gonna cure this problem." Um, the principal's plan was that that um, Sophie was going to have to collect the trash from all of the classrooms. That was her penance. Okay, so she gives Sophie this, this you know, the, the gloves and the, the bags and go do your job. Well, she was just singing and having a great time. By the end of the day, everybody wanted to be trash collector. So not only could she convince herself that this was not, this was not punishment for her, this was, this was great, this was, this was great, and, and the other kids bought into it. You know, so again, at age four, to be able to do that, um, so, you know, 
what, what we saw as parents was a child who was very, very difficult to give normal consequences to because she turned lemons into lemonade every time. Wasn't sort of the wasn't, Pied Piper. I, yeah, yeah I, exactly. And, you know, part of me at the time thought, wow, this is a really resolute kid. She's, she's got all this, this resi- she's resilient. She's, I, I envisioned her having a miserable boss, you know, as, a, as an adult and, and not letting it bother her. I thought, wow, this is a great personality characteristic. Well, maybe not. Um, because because there was just, she, she could convince herself that there's not a problem with it. You know, at age eight, when she's acting out in school, and I tell her she can't go trick-or-treating, that her, her consequence is she's going to stand at the door and give out candy, she's happy to do that. And, you know, a parent comes by and says, why aren't you out trick-or-treating? She says, oh, this is so much more fun. Try and parent that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's because the opposite, as you're describing all these situations, this is the opposite of what you would expect at each one of the... At, you know, at 8 or 10 or 11. Exactly. Um, it, that inability, what, to accept the punishment, but, to, you know, she's making it or feel like it's something that's positive, that's good, which yeah. is, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what happens at puberty? Because, I mean, that's obviously, that's a critical time for yeah for manifesting some of the symptoms of mental illness. And hers are obviously serious, borderline, bipolar. Yeah, yeah. So, so at, in fifth grade, she was diagnosed with ADHD, um, we medicated her for that, and she had a good beginning of sixth, sixth grade was good. In seventh grade, we moved, um, and so so puberty is kicking in in seventh grade, and the behaviors start to get much more wild at that point. Um, she's talking to perverts on the internet, and she's um, cutting herself, and she's acting out in school. Um, so, is cutting pretty t- fairly typical for girls in particular? Well, you know, that's very interesting. And, and, of course, I didn't know anything about this before it started. Um, and and what, what I saw was there were a number of girls in her little network, and they were all doing it. They were all cutting themselves. And then they reached a point where, they, and I don't know, there were four or five girls. And then they would take turns rescuing each other. They would They would take turns feigning suicide, and they would take turns rescuing each other. And, of course, that then got the parents involved. Um, but, uh, so, so, you know, I don't know how common it is, but, but I do know that she was attracted to these people that were also involved in it. Um, so, you know, and then the, 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 she's, she's stealing. Um, you know, the behaviors just get worse and worse and worse. And, and you know, of course, at that point, we've got... Um, the doctors are involved, um, and she's seeing a psychiatrist, and she's being medicated. Um, but you know, she, the, the, the the riskiness, the the impulsiveness, just continues and and just gets worse as worse. she gets older. All right, so all of that becomes exacerbated, and I, and then by the time you get to high school and you have more freedom and independence, mm-hmm. you're able to do a lot of that stuff really on your own, and you have right. less control over who she's with and what she's doing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So and then, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, um, to sort of fast forward, you know, when she turned, and there, there were several hospitalizations um, when she was a uh, junior in high school. She was well, diagnosed You know, because we only have, believe it or not, we only have a few minutes left, so people are going to have to read the book if they want to yeah. hear the rest of the story, obviously. But during this process, just as a little kind of, I want to get this in here, how are you as a family 
coping in terms of hiding all this from people because yeah the school's involved you're stealing the law gets involved the you know uh, there are a lot more people involved now but you yeah. still have your circle of friends and and uh, neighbors and and family how how are you balancing keeping that you know away from them so that they are not aware of what's happening you know, I'm not sure exactly how we did it, but we did it. The school knew only what the school needed to know. Um, the, the law enforcement folks were, were involved at, at various points. Um, but we, we still kept that protective shell around the family. Um, and we tried to, um, you know, we, we, just tried, we just didn't share. We didn't share that she had been arrested or we didn't share that, that um, she spent time in a psychiatric hospital. We just, we just didn't tell people. And what about your relationship with your husband and how that affect? I mean, how that affected the two of you? I mean, so, was this something you talked about so. all the time because you couldn't talk about it with anybody else? We did. Or did you just pretend did. it we wasn't talked. happening or what? Yep. No, we talked about it all the time. I think, you know, people have, have said, wow, you must have an incredible marriage. Um, and, you know, at the time, I wasn't really thinking about that. My husband and I would talk to each other constantly. Um, we, we have dogs, and we would walk the dogs in the morning and at night, and that was our time to just talk about what was going on and how we, we strategized, how we're going to deal with X, Y, and Z. Um, so so that, that support that we had, you know, for each other was, was tremendously helpful, and especially with, with um, borderline personality, you know, people tend to split um, people. So, so, you know, people, mom might be the good guy one day and dad might be the good guy the other day. And so we did not let that happen because our bond was so strong and we, we talked all the time. And do you think because you're a psychologist that also had to help? I mean, you're aware of, like, that when you uh, borderline uh, – personality disorder, someone who has that, does that, you know, sets people up against one another, <clears throat> particularly parents. Um, you know, I'm but, not so sure that it had much to do with my being a psychologist. I'm a research psychologist. I'm a gerontologist. Um, so so my, my work, my day job really is not on the clinical side. Um, I would listen and I would read. I certainly read, you know, every, with every new diagnosis she got, I would read. And so I would learn about what this is and, and what, how, how should I be dealing with it. Um, so I think that, I mean, that was the coping strategy, I think. All right. So do we want to sit where we have literally two more minutes left, so where do we want to go with it and where do we want to leave people? Because I want to make sure that they, well, I want to tell them the name of the book again, Surrounded by Madness, a memoir of mental illness and family secrets. And you can buy the book online in bookstores everywhere. Right. And um, I, think the, I think the message of the book is that, that we need not to keep secrets. Um, you know, the whole, the, once she turned 18, things change, and, you know, maybe we could talk about that another time. What happens yeah. when a person turns 18? Everything changes. Um, but, and, and, and I think the reader sees that in the book. But, but I think that the, the main message is to, to read Surrounded by Man is to understand that you're not alone. Um, it, it's, it's very powerful to understand that other people are dealing with it and that, that people like myself and my husband who had the resources to, to, to get the best doctors, it, it still didn't help her enough. Yeah. I think that's so important, Rachel, because, I, I, you know, I'm just, I just could re it's not the exact story, but similar, similar story, and kind of, I think I said this in the beginning, I have family, I have friends, I have mm -hmm. colleagues who, your story is so familiar, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's so important to get the story out and to not get to a point where, you know, you really, I mean, it's always, it, do we have to hit rock bottom? I don't know. Or does one have to hit? 
rock you know, bottom. That, that's, that's, that's my least favorite term, rock bottom, yeah. because that's what all the smart doctors said. She has yeah, to hit exactly. rock bottom. You know, we don't say that to a diabetic or a heart patient. Why do we yeah. say that to a person with mental illness, many of whom don't even understand how sick they are? Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great point, uh, and maybe that's what we'll uh, end our interview on. But I, I thank you so much for being on the show. And it's thank a great you so book. much for I having recommend, me. Yeah, I truly recommend the book, Surrounded by Madness, A Memoir of Mental Illness and Family Secrets, Dr. Rachel Puchno. Um, we're going to take a short break right, right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ah, a nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Jennifer S. Holland. Uh, Jennifer is a writer for the National Geographic. She is the author of New York Times best-selling books, Unlikely Friendships, 47 Remarkable Stories from the Animal Kingdom, and Unlikely Loves, 43 Heartwarming True Stories from the Animal Kingdom. And we're going to hear some more stories from the Animal Kingdom this morning uh, in reference to her new book, Unlikely Heroes, Unlikely Heroes, 37 Inspiring Stories of Courage and Heart, from the Animal Kingdom. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. 
Well, as I understand it, this book, your new book, uh, in this new book, you prove that even the tiniest of creatures is capable of great selfless acts and powerful emotion. So I'm going to sort of take that as the premise of the book, and we can start there, because you've got a, many, many stories about animals who are, have done these remarkable selfless acts, the kinds of acts that we, uh, when, when a human being does it, we pronounce them heroes or heroines. So Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's just it, is that I think, you know, we tend to think of, we, we have a definition for hero that, that applies to people. But when you start to look at some of the things that animals do, you can certainly use that same term. I think it's really applicable to a lot of the things that uh, that happen in these stories. Well, you're a writer for National Geographic. Obviously, I'd assume you would have interest in in uh, environment and animals, et cetera. But how did you how did you come to well, first of all, this particular book? I mean, well, how did you decide or what piqued your interest in terms of seeing these animals and and recognizing that they have uh, accomplished these selfless acts of love? You know, I've always been fascinated by animal behavior and what we know about animal minds, animal intelligence, and emotion. You know, it's always been kind of, for a long time, very taboo to really use terminology that we use to describe human behavior and human emotion when we talk about other animals. And so, um, you know, I'm certainly one of the people that, that has been fascinated by all of the research that's come out in recent years that really is showing more and more overlap in in that, you know, ability to feel empathy, things like that. We're, we're definitely seeing the brain structures in other mammals and the, you know, lighting up of parts of the brain when they do studies and things that, that really shows there's more, there's more going on there, I think, than we used to believe. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the first two books were really looking at that, that ability to show some kind of compassion, um, in particular across species lines. That was the, the part that, that really got me interested was the surprise of, you know, why would an elephant and a dog become friends? Why would a, you know, a chicken associate with a cat? That sort of thing. Um, but this book, I, I guess I just wanted to branch out a little bit from just sort of showing compassion and see what, you know, what are some of the stories where animals do something that, that takes a step further than that, where they're maybe putting themselves in danger, um, stepping in and helping, you know, an animal that's in, in trouble. Or um, in some cases, these are animals that have been trained to assist humans or animals that are trained um, to be used in conservation or other programs like that. So they don't you know, they don't necessarily know that they're doing something heroic, but I think, you know, we can still kind of give them credit for that. Um, and so the more I dug into that, the more I found that there were just a lot of really great stories to tell, and I could probably fill a couple more books with these. <laughs> and I'm sure you will. But I was going to but Jennifer, you're saying some of them, some of these animals, okay, have been trained. They're, we train, I know, dogs and, and, and horses with children with disabilities and to, to you know, to... Um, work with them, uh, but is it just, it's not just animals who have been trained, I think, it, I mean, I think, which is a huge, it is a difference, isn't it? I mean, you're talking about animals in the wild who haven't necessarily been trained to um, take care of human beings and to work with people with disabilities, mental or physical. They're also just animals, and I, I think of this one case uh, that was in the news a few years ago, and um, with, I think it was a I think it was a baboon at the San Diego Zoo who saved the little boy. Um, who, uh, a four-year-old fell into the cage, I guess, in the, in the um, 
at the zoo, and the uh, the male baboon was about to go after the the, the baby, the four year old, and the female wouldn't allow it, and she placed and the it other stood in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, you do hear about the that baby with, over. With yeah. I mean, that's one of those selfless acts. I just want to, which always stuck with me, I guess. So that's why I was so interested in your book. Yeah, and there's um, actually in the book there are a couple of um, similar stories with gorillas. There's a couple of cases with um, actually two different cases with a, a young boy that falls into an exhibit like that. I think I guess young boys like to climb up on things. Yes, they do. I've had to. three of them. <laughs> And uh, and two different cases, one with a male and one with a female, that that kind of seemed to protect the boy from the other animals um, and and didn't harm the boy, you know, which they certainly could have done also. So I think there are with primates, especially, you know, it's very interesting to to see that because we of course see so much of ourselves in these other animals, um, but you do think of them as being uh, wilder and and not necessarily. Um, you know, as as gentle and thinking and kind, but yet you see these cases where they they do step in and do something like that, and it's it's really, I think, amazing. And I just to to have witnessed something like that, I think, would be just incredible. Yeah, I do too. And you know, I have to say, and I'm going to admit it, but I've been one of those people who is who is somewhat critical of people and their animals that they uh, anthropomorphize them, make them seem like they're human beings and they're not, yeah. and they yeah. and uh, you know whether it's Taking them into inappropriate places. I even had a friend who brought a, their dog to uh, a cocktail party, and I didn't think that was appropriate. But uh, I mean, and that is one of the examples where they can't leave their dogs to go on a trip because the hotel doesn't allow dogs, and they will really forego taking a trip because their right. animal can't be there. So. I have to say, I am one of those people who's slightly critical. So I, I, I like hearing these stories, but. Um, it gives you a completely different perspective. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, I, I think there are those of us, and I, I'm guilty of it, um, you know, who maybe take take our animals to the next level and, and do see them kind of as such integral parts of our families and, and treating them that way. And certainly I understand, you know, my friends with with children, actual human children might think that I'm a little bit crazy for, <laughs> for doing that. But I just, um, you know, I also just love them and I really just appreciate them in, in all of their, you know, all their crazy ways. And, and so there's just, you know, I think a love there that also is, contributes to that behavior. But, um, but they are capable of, I think, some really interesting thought processes that, you know, that, that we didn't really realize. All right, let's and talk we're specifically about those, because I think that is, yeah, sure. I want to, like, hone in on that, because they yeah. really can't, I mean, this, I keep going back to it, I mean, they, it's sort of like that um, abstract thinking, in a way, that that's, that's very closely akin to human beings, which, right, yeah. You know, they have seen, I think, um, you know, some of the more recent, work has looked at more and more at elephants. I think a lot of people have heard about, you know, elephants mourning their dead and, and going through processes like that. Um, animals that seem to be able to think, you know, can, can understand what another animal is thinking and respond in a way to, you know, kind of that future behavior that might come from that other animal. So they're really sort of, you know, going one step further than than we thought. And even animals like crows, I think, have been shown to do this. There's some birds that do this. So so more complex thought processes than um, than just, you know, kind of the, the very, very basic ones that you would imagine animals would have. And and it you wonder then, for example, in the book, there's a, a story in the wild of a hippopotamus that 
goes into the water and actually helps two different little young hoofed mammals that are trying to cross a river, um, helps them to shore. Um, when they get kind of stuck in the river, there's crocodiles, there's a lot of activity with a bunch of migrating mammals crossing a river. And this hippo comes, you know, off the shore and goes into the water and actually pushes these animals across. And, and something like that is just, you just think, what is happening there? You know, this, this hippo... How do we first explain all, that? I mean, you know, as, as scientists, I'm sure that you have... Um, Obviously, I mean, this is a whole science. If you're talking about a hippopotamus who actually is thinking about saving these other mammals, what what is going through that animal's brain? How yeah, do we? I mean, yeah, that's that's the question. How do you explain that? And I think in that case, um, you know, she was the uh, a lactating mother herself. You know, there was a young hippo, I think, on the shore too. And so you can kind of say, okay, well. The maternal instinct was there. She saw, you know, an animal struggling, and it just clicked that, you know, helpless animal, she needed to help it. But there's still, there's something there that's missing in that explanation, and you think, well, she she must know that that's not her baby. Um, you know, animals seem to, to very clearly understand who their, their offspring are. Um, so to, to go in after an animal that's a completely different species that has no, you know, is not benefiting her in any way, why she would go through that is, is that's the question. You know, if we could get into that brain a little bit more closely, it's a fascinating question. And how are we doing it? Are we doing it? I mean, from a scientific perspective, I mean, obviously you've observed all of this kind of behavior, and these are examples that you have in your book, but uh, scientifically what are we doing to explain that behavior? I think um, you know a lot of the research is on um, dogs and and chimps and animals that we have you know more immediate access to. You probably not. I don't know that anybody is studying kind of hippo intelligence at this point, but um, but they are you know more and more able to do things like um, somehow I don't know how they keep a dog steady in an MRI machine, but they have done some some MRI studies of dog brains to see, you know, how do a, how does a dog respond to a familiar person? Um, and they find that it's exactly the same as how the human brain responds to that. So, you know, if you see your best friend, certain things are happening in your brain and a dog is going through the same thing. And that, that tells us you know, very much that an animal is, is experiencing something that's at least very similar. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how the dog is experiencing it, but, but we do see just in terms of how the brain works and that function, we do see this overlap. Um, you know, they've shown in rats, you know, a response, similar kind of thing with a rat becoming very stressed and upset if they hear another rat um, that is hurt or is going through a stressful time and is vocalizing in some way. Um, they've shown, again, with elephants, too, just the sounds that they make and caressing with the trunk of, of a female that's lost her baby, something like that. So there are these behaviors and associated um, kind of brain function that they can correlate and, and look at that and say, okay, this is, this is very much like humans, and, you know, I think, I think it's fair to say that there's something very similar happening. So when we have the opportunity to be able to put all these animals in an MRI, then we'll have more information. <laughs> like you, That's like right. It's hard to get the hippo in there. <laughs> you get the hippo in there, exactly. Uh, well, our MRI machines are getting bigger and bigger. I probably didn't say that, but it's true. Um, uh, but what about, okay, now we're talking about mammals and we're talking, uh, dolphins, for instance, I think they do, they 
study or continue, right? That dolphins have this amazing ability to have these kinds of relationships. But I was reading on your bio, it says you have three dogs, dozens of snakes and geckos. So what about (laughs) snakes and geckos? I mean, at that level of the animal kingdom, do you ever see any of these selfless acts of kindness? Um, I, you know, I'd love to say I've seen it, but not really. I yeah. think, uh, you know, I think there is a, a pretty big divide there. Um, in, in the first book, I did have kind of a fun story of a, a snake with a, a little hamster, um, that where this, the snake was given this animal to eat and, and instead they kind of cuddled up together. And, you know, I think that one was more, fun than anything else. I don't know what happened two weeks later, you know, so <laughs> in that case, it might have been a temporary friendship. Right, who had but, what for um, dinner. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then in uh, in the second book, I think there's a, a cat and an iguana. So we had one more reptile that kind of played a part in a friendship. But I think, you know, I don't know that they're going through the same uh, you know, brain activity and and empathetic feelings and that kind of thing that um, that mammals are capable of doing. So, I think we have a long way to go in studying those, and and probably more people are interested in mammals at this point. So that's probably where the research is focused. Yep. Well, all right. So um, let's talk about some of these the, the mammals. Uh, you talk about them as well, surrogate parents. Give us some. You know, tell us the story about a mammal um, or an animal uh, acting sure. as a surrogate. Pa- yeah. Yeah, there's um, one of one that's fun in in the new book, Unlikely Heroes, is a uh, there's a dog that just has a very special affection for cats, and although he was unable to be a mother, he you know certainly couldn't produce milk for these cats or anything. He ended up really kind of taking in a lot of cats that needed to kind of get through that first. Uh, those first days of life, cats that had had the mother had died or they were abandoned, that sort of thing. And the owner, who wasn't really a big fan of cats um, to begin with, kind of realized that this was this dog's mission. The dog wanted to help cats. And, and sort of the first incident was the dog found a litter of kittens in the bushes and came, you know, went in and got each one and carried it out gently and was, you know, nuzzling them and treating them as though, um, as though he was the parent. And so it ended up kind of being this dog's lifelong experience. The, uh, the owner would, you know, would accept cats that needed a little help and he became well known in the, the animal rescue community for having this dog that would, uh, that would kind of give this companionship and nurturing to to kittens that needed it. So um, so I think, and that I think is a relatively common, you know, in in these kinds of scenarios, I think that uh, an, an animal that's lost a parent is going to be more likely to cross species boundaries um, and vice versa. An, an animal that is a parent and has that that nurturing need um, is probably more likely to take in an animal and and treat it that way. Um, so, you know, a dog with a squirrel was in one of the books. Um, uh, there's a couple of others along those lines. So I think it's it, it kind of explains to some degree why that happens um, under those circumstances. Um, yeah, under those so for particular the circumstances. Well, you also, I mean, another example, I guess, was one of the, which I was kind of intrigued with, a paralyzed bunny who brings joy to paralyzed children. How does that work? Or how has yeah, yeah, I love these. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the stories where you have kind of a, an animal that, that gets through a really tough situation and and can inspire others. And in this case, it's a, a rabbit that uh, both legs were paralyzed when it was born or shortly after it was born. Um, it, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but um, but the owner 
happened to work at a children's hospital, and um, she was able to get this little kind of prosthetic back end made for the rabbit, a little cart. And in a way, it was it resembled very much some of the equipment that some of the kids at this hospital had to use. And she said that you know she would bring the rabbit to the hospital and let the rabbit kind of run up and down the halls. And the kids would get to play with it and see it, and that it really helped a lot of the children to accept their disabilities and to accept that they had to wear, you know, some kind of prosthetic because they kind of saw in this animal, you know, the spirit that it was, it was happy, it was having fun, it was running, you know, enjoying itself despite the, the trouble that it had experienced. Um, so it's really, I think, when an animal can, can bring that kind of joy and inspiration to, to people is, is just such a neat thing. Yeah. Um, and that's the, the cover story uh, on the book is a similar situation with a, a dog that lost it. All four paws had to be amputated when it was young, and um, it went through a lot of infections and I'm sure a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty. Um, but it now has four prosthetic limbs, and it, it just couldn't be sweeter. It's, it's just the gentlest most spirited animal you can imagine. And again, the owner has used that to help other people and has introduced the dog to, uh, to people who have similar problems and allowed them to kind of see, you know, how, how happy this animal is and what a positive influence it is. Yeah, I mean, those are inspiring stories, and obviously, but I think one of the other things in the point you make, too, I want to, um, to bring up, because you're talking about particularly the animals who do these kind of selfless acts and, and, and save other animals, um, you know, they do it out of, as you describe it, kindness and loyalty and love, and they don't expect anything in return, um, right. which very often human beings do it, but they do expect something in return. Not that the act itself isn't good or something that's positive, but they, they want money, fame, or fortune. And these animals just do it just because of who they are and then yeah. go on to lead their animal lives, but uh, they're just doing out of these kind of this powerful selfless acts, this emotional acts, I guess, that you, you just don't, or I don't, uh, usually associate with, you know, some of the stories that you've been describing, you know, the, yeah. the animals, yeah. Yeah, and there's, you know, for example, a, a dog, uh, and again, there there are a lot of dogs. Um, I, I wanted to branch out, and so I tried to find as many stories as I could that were other kinds of animals because you, you might expect this a little bit more of dogs than of some animals. But um, but there's a, a dog called a Leonberger, a huge, wonderful beast and um, much beloved by its owner. And the man uh, was went after, actually, one of his other dogs had gone swimming and had its foot caught in the river, you know, some debris or something under the water. So he went in after the dog and got swept away uh, by the river currents and was really in trouble. He had gone around a bend in the river. He was really, you know, starting to, to get very tired. He wasn't sure he was going to make it. And his other dog that had been with him on shore came after him and actually, you know, swam up behind him and got under him and kind of, you know, gave him a life preserver. And he was able to grab onto the dog and, and get to, to uh, a floating branch or something and, and uh, eventually was, was rescued. So, you know, we can't understand exactly what that dog was thinking, but it's it's very clear that the dog went after its owner. You know, it, it clearly followed its owner, and when it saw that the, the owner was in trouble, it did something about it. So it's just, it's really remarkable to imagine what, what's going on in that head and, and what causes them to do that. 
Well, then, Jennifer, it sounds to me, in reading your book and talking to you, I mean, we are kind of underestimating our animals, aren't we? I mean, once we can sort of figure this all out and how they do it and why they do it, I mean, they're really at a level that most of us aren't aware of. I mean, they're capable of doing things that we just, I don't think, uh, have thought about that that would take us kind of to another level in the animal kingdom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think there is a lot of capability there that we don't know about yet. Um, you know, as a, a science writer, I'm always careful to try to walk the line, you know, of, well, we don't know this, we don't know that, we, we don't want to jump too far ahead of ourselves. But I, I just think that the, you know, the research so far has shown a lot of really interesting things that we didn't expect. Um, and so I kind of like to just say we give animals the benefit of the doubt, especially in the way we treat them, um, you know, when we think about animal research or how they're kept in captivity, that sort of thing. I think the more we can say, okay, you know, they're, they're like us in a lot of ways and deserve to be treated as such, um, I think that's a positive thing. And so I'm, I'm certainly comfortable saying that. Um, but I think there's, you know, there are good reasons to, uh, especially for, for researchers in the field, I think it is important not to apply too many um, human ideas to what you're seeing because I think that does, it makes it harder to really analyze the research and, uh, you know, in a way that's, that's fair. Um, so they have to, you know, you don't want to, to see an animal with a big grin and say, oh, the animal's happy, um, because something like a chimpanzee, a grin is not a happy face. You know, that's, that can be a, a fear face, I think. So I think there are, there are lines that have to be drawn, especially for, for researchers. Um, but for the rest of us, I think appreciating and seeing those kinds of things in, in the animals around us is not, really a bad thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. Who is it hurting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. who is it hurting? And I, So given that, I want to mention the book again because I think it's an important book and uh, for adults and children, actually. Unlikely Heroes, 37 Inspiring Stories of Courage and Heart from the Animal Kingdom. And um, I just have to tell you, Jennifer, this summer I was in Austria, and I don't know if you've been there, but there's a zoo which had once been the King's Zoo, and hmm. so it's this palatial, all I can describe it, it was you're talking about treating animals and treating them well. Um, each one of the animals, they were, may not even, could not be described necessarily as cages. They would have acres or, you know, an acre of land and housing hmm. for a mother and a father, whatever the species was, and the baby. I mean, hmm. living better than most human beings around this world <laughs> live. It was the, one of the most impressive places I've ever seen. I don't know if you've been there, but it just no, was your, no. yeah describing the way we treat animals. This was like an incredible kind of um, uh, homes for these animals. But um, we have to say goodbye. And um, I've been talking to Jennifer Holland, uh, author of, and I'm going to mention it again, Unlikely Heroes, 37 Inspiring Stories of Courage and Heart from the Animal Kingdom. You can go online, buy the book, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it was great having you. Uh, we are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. 
Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 